Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Andrew Roberts about his new biography of Winston Churchill entitled Churchill, Walking with Destiny. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much to you, uh, indeed, Mark. It's very nice to be on it. And it's very nice to have an opportunity to speak to a historian of your stature. <laughs> very kind of you. <laughs> I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I've been a historian now for 30 years. I left Cambridge University in order, where I read history in order to um, go into the city and be a banker and discovered fairly soon that I was functionally innumerate and um, completely useless at, uh, at my job. And therefore, I chucked it and did the thing that I'd always loved the most, which was um, the, uh, the world of history. And uh, I have to say, although sometimes in life you do have things you regret, uh, that's a decision I haven't regretted for one second. <laughs> it, the choice of Churchill is a, a fascinating one, given the wealth of scholarship that is out there about him. And yes. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> say that again. There are 1,009 books on Churchill. So there is something slightly hubristic in bringing out a 1,010th. But uh, the fact is that in the last 10 years, there's been the most extraordinary cornucopia of new sources about Churchill. Uh, I was very fortunate that Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And these have proved invaluable. Um, there are also, we might go on and talk about those in a, a little bit later, but there's also been 41 sets of new papers that have been deposited at Churchill College Archives in Cambridge University uh, by people who worked with Churchill and were close to him, including the 1940 diary of, her, of his uh, daughter, Mary Soames. There's the diaries of the uh, Soviet ambassador that have become available in the last 10 years. Uh, Ivan Maisky, who's ambassador to London from 1932 to 43. The verbal um, actual accounts of the war cabinet minutes, which I discovered six years ago. And, uh, and many other of those kind of level, the Churchill family have been very generous in allowing me to use family um, papers that haven't been seen by other historians as well. So I've been tremendously fortunate that in the last 10 years or so, there's been an avalanche of new sources, which means that there's something on pretty, every, pretty much every page of this biography that has never appeared in a Churchill biography before. That makes for a definitely a, a fresh look at Churchill. In what ways did you find that it changed your understanding in particular of Churchill as a person and as a historical figure? Well, um, to go back to the, um, the diaries of King George VI, um, which I uh, used, I was very surprised by the level of, uh, of uh, frustration, irritation, really, that uh, Winston Churchill had, um, which he couldn't expressed to anyone apart from the king. He couldn't say it in public, but he had with um, the Roosevelt administration. He saw the Second World War very much as a struggle between uh, good and evil, um, civilization versus barbarism, and uh, fascism versus democracy. And so he couldn't see why the American people weren't, uh, and more importantly, their, their political leaders, weren't getting more involved more um, more heavily than they were in that period between the outbreak of the war in September 1939 and Hitler declaring war on America on the 11th of December 1941. Um, I wonder if I could just say a, a little bit more about these diaries. They're um, very um, 
they're very important and uh, and it's quite extraordinary really the insight that they give because the king had lunch with Winston Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War. Uh, Churchill would go to Buckingham Palace, have an audience, they'd have lunch, and they'd serve themselves from the sideboard because the things they were discussing were so secret. Um, you couldn't have anybody else there. He told uh, the king about the ultra-secret, about the nuclear secrets, where um, the Allies were going to attack and when. Um, he told them about, he told the king about uh, ministers and generals who he was going to hire and fire, sometimes weeks before he actually did. And, uh, and so these two men trusted each other greatly. And, um, and rather wonderfully, the king um, then wrote down everything that Churchill said in the meeting. So we have this insight into the hopes and fears, the aperçu and jokes of Winston Churchill for every Tuesday of the Second World War. It's interesting that you mentioned the intelligence because lately there's been a lot of work done about the history of intelligence. Uh, Christopher Andrews has been doing some fascinating work. And one of the points that has come out from it is that it's an aspect of the war that Churchill himself was never able to uh, address publicly prior to his passing in 1965. He was never able to acknowledge the role that it played in terms of his own history of the Second World War. And that's something that I, I was thinking about as I was reading your book about a, a dimension of it that you were able to introduce. And it's fascinating to consider that he was able, even in spite of this deeply held uh, secrecy about it, to talk to the king about it on a, on a weekly basis. That's right. Yes, exactly. It really was a um, uh, a sign of how much he trusted the king. Of course, he, uh, he knew that the king was one of the few people in public life who uh, wasn't after his job, which I suppose helped slightly. Um, but um, there was no reason why they should necessarily have got on so well, because if you remember, only four years earlier, Winston Churchill had supported Edward VIII, the king's elder brother, during the abdication crisis, which left the king very much... Um, doubting Churchill's judgment. In fact, he told the Prime Minister of Canada that he wouldn't appoint Winston Churchill to uh, the government unless there were a world war, which of course there was. <laughs> um, so uh, so uh, he was lucky in that respect. And also Churchill had doubt uh, the king's judgment because he had been a very strong supporter. The king had been a very strong supporter of uh, Neville Trump Chamberlain's policy of appeasement. So they might not have got on, but in fact they did, and they got on very quickly. And certainly by the time of the fall of France and the Battle of Britain, and definitely by the Blitz, um, the king was calling um, Churchill by his Christian name, calling him Winston, uh, which he didn't do for any of the other prime ministers uh, that he had. And uh, in these diaries, he actually refers to Churchill as his friend. It sounds like, given your description, that for Churchill, the king was more than just his sovereign. He could also serve as this very unique, almost psych psychological counselor that he could unburden himself to in a way that he could king, virtually king, nobody else. The king, yeah, the king emperor as shrink. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, um, well there is an, you know, there is an element uh, to that, definitely, because he was the person he, who he could tell everything to, knowing that he could trust him implicitly, knowing that he had the best interests of the nation at heart, uh, knowing that he was apolitical, and knowing that, you know, he had, uh, he knew 
all of the people that they were discussing. The king had met the president of France. He had met the um, president of uh, Roosevelt. He'd met the, the prime minister of Canada and, of course, all the major British politicians. So it was, and soldiers. So it um, it was, in that sense, a, uh, a an important relationship and a rather revelatory one, especially when we now have the opportunity to, um, to read his diaries. Now, it's important to, to keep in uh, perspective the fact that the diaries are just one addition to what is a very substantial biography. And I was wondering if we could go back a bit and talk a bit about Winston Churchill's early life. What in do you think that you covered in your early chapters about his youth, his uh, early years, his early years in politics, that you feel warrants uh, attention or that might have been overlooked by previous biographers? I think his relationship with his father was an extraordinarily important one. He... um to all intents and purposes, should have had an absolutely disastrous relationship with his father because his father um, was utterly underwhelmed by Winston. He was—he never thought that he would amount to much. He uh, wrote him extremely angry letters. Um, he seemed desperately ill-tempered um, when uh, when his eldest son came uh, up in conversation. He was horrible about him, both to his um, face and behind his back. And yet, um, instead of this uh, turning Churchill off, he, if anything, loved his father all the more. It's a weird um, thing psychologically. He, after his father died, aged 45, was 20, he wrote his father's uh, two-volume biography, uh, a very big book. He wrote, he, he sought out his father's friends. He tried to um, to really impress his father beyond his father's grave, as it were. He, uh, he called his own son, Randolph. He adopted his father's political stances, the Tory democracy of of Benjamin Disraeli, um, and his physical stance of speaking. And he quoted his father constantly in speeches. And then in 1947, um, he had a uh, sort of what he called the dream, but seems more like a sort of weird vision where he met his father's ghost and they talk. And at no point does he let on to his father that he would have been instrumental in winning the Second World War. So you have this um, this extraordinary relationship with his, uh, in life, extremely caustic uh, father, who was, of course, Chancellor of the Exchequer and uh, successful Victorian um, politician, mercurial, aloof, disdainful, brilliant man. And, uh, and Churchill seems to have been profoundly psychologically affected by it ever since, in a positive way that drove him on to, uh, to try to emulate and ultimately, of course, beat his father. Which he does over a long career, albeit one that, as you point out, it, it was not necessarily looked upon with favor by a lot of of his contemporaries. I was thinking in particular about the your chapter where you're describing his uh, pre-war uh, career as a liberal politician and the, the uh, contempt with which he was viewed by all of these very prominent people, mostly on the uh, on the side of the Tories, but he, you find that even the, not all the liberals necessarily trusted him. Well, no, of course. I mean, if you do cross the floor of the House of Commons, not once but twice, it's rather difficult to um, to be trusted by too many people. Um, he, he, you know, he wasn't uh, followed by that many people either, and it was therefore a um, an excuse really for people 
often less impressive people to um, just attack his judgment full stop. But I found, I think, in the writing of this, um, and I hope it comes through, that there were principles that he was um, very much attached to. And actually, it was the parties who moved away from him, uh, especially, of course, over the issue of free trade, rather than him who moved away from the parties, although, of course, he did, he did, as I say, cross the floor of the House. He was um, uh, slightly mercurial uh, in that sense, rather like his father had been. But he did have these um, these uh, deeply held principles that he stuck to, even if his parties didn't. I was thinking another reflection of the sense that how the parties were not necessarily fit for him was his belief in the idea of the cross-party coalition. And you write about how that dynamic is reflected in his creation of the other club in uh, in the years right before World War One, with the idea of that that leaders from both sides could come together and hopefully at some point work together in a way uh, that leads to this sensible centrist uh, you know agenda being achieved without the extremes That's on either right. side. Yes, yes, he's a um, he is in that sense he's very much in in favour of bipartisan. Uh, politics and finding a sort of new centre party which would eschew the um, ultranationalism of the of the right wing Tories and also the um, neo socialism of the left wing liberals and uh, and would and would be sort of solidly in the middle and he thinks therefore probably in government forever. Um, <laughs> the only drawback is that if you're trying to start a new party, you are very clearly going to be distrusted once the news of this gets out by. Um, by the people in the uh, in the original parties, in the uh, parties that do exist, and so uh, that he got all the obloquy and um, and ill temper for for that, and at the same time the other club, which is a magnificent institution and exists to this day, um, in fact. Um, which he set up in 1911 with his Tory friend um, F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, and along with uh, his liberal friend David Lloyd George. And the idea for this was that they were going to, um, as you say, try to um, to cross party lines and come up with a with a proper way of governing the nation. And um, and it failed as, it, however successful it was as a club, as a dining club, um, it failed as a uh, as an idea, especially as um, of course, if anything, party politics um, uh, became even more rancorous and uh, and difficult over issues such as the suffrage and um, uh, Ireland and the trade unions also uh, in the three years or so before the outbreak of the Great War. Um, but it was at least an attempt. And, um, and uh, there is a line in the rules of the other club uh, which says that nothing shall interfere with the asperity and rancor of party politics. But in fact, uh, although that is in the club rules, in fact, of course, it was precisely to try to lessen the rancor and disparity of party politics that Churchill set up the club. That issue of rancor comes up in another respect. You know, I, I thought of it as you were describing uh, the, you mentioned particularly the, the, the suffragists, because I was fascinated by how you described his position on the question of women's suffrage uh, in the pre-war period and how he is generally supportive of it. And yet that does nothing to spare him from the criticism and, and even assaults by suffragists upon him. And it really conveys something about both his ability to have views irrespective of his treatment by 
the people whom he's dealing with, and also sometimes how he, you can see, you can sense at various points that he, the certain limits that he was reaching in terms of his temper. Yes, that's right. Um, he uh, he was he had voted in favour of um, a paving motion uh, for women's suffrage before he started to be attacked by the suffragettes, and um, and I'm afraid as a result, all his uh, competitive uh, nature came out very quickly and he um as you say he was physically assaulted on a regular basis people uh, tried to one lady tried to push him under a train another person horse whipped him in a train carriage where he was going to make a speech um and or at least attempted to horse whip him but um churchill was was quite a um you know he could take care of himself <laughs> as a ex soldier and um and so all in all it was um it was one of the tragedies really that he did oppose women's suffrage because uh, it was very bad for him and obviously for his long-term reputation but he did make these mistakes you know Winston Churchill though he was a genius he was a deeply flawed genius he constantly made mistakes he made a mistake as we mentioned earlier about the abdication crisis he when Chancellor of the Exchequer put Britain onto the gold standard at the wrong time at the wrong level Um, the uh, Dardanelles crisis I'm sure we'll get on to to discuss later in the uh, podcast but nonetheless that also was um, a catastrophe there are many more as well Um, the blackened hands in Ireland uh, a good example as well so um, he was a politician though who learned from his mistakes and uh, indeed he said to his wife Clementine I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes and I think that's a um, that's an interesting sort of redemptive side of his personality, which uh, and his career, which I think is tremendously important. I actually want to turn our focus now to the Dardanelles because up until that point, the the controversies that oftentimes plague him, you point out, are we we, we mis, uh, often we misinterpret them. Uh, an example being uh, Tony Pandy, which is which has you know been misrepresented as the uh, troops being used to suppress miners when, as you point out, the troops were dispatched, but they were never deployed, or excuse me, they were deployed, but they were never actually, uh, you know, involved in uh, dealing with the miners directly. So, and how these contribute to these, you know, mythologies about him that that are used as criticism. But the Dardanelles is, is the first time in which his career suffers a very serious reverse as a result of uh, actions in which he's involved. Could you uh, expand a bit upon your uh, presentation of the Dardanelles and, and, and how you have uh, fitted in the, over the course of his uh, life and career? Well, um, yes. Just to recap about the um, about the campaign, it was um, in the uh, early part of 1915 a completely brilliant strategic concept to get the Royal Navy, of which, of course, he was the political uh, leader in the um, in the House of Commons as First Lord of the Admiralty, through the Straits of the Dardanelles from the Mediterranean Sea into just before the Black Sea, and uh, there thereby um, threaten Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and, um, and effectively knock the Ottoman Empire out of the First World War, basically take Turkey out of the Central Powers. And um, if it had come off, it would have been one of the great coups of, the, of World War I. But uh, instead, in the implementation of it, which Churchill, of course, wasn't responsible for, he was back in London, um, it went disastrously wrong. On the 18th of March 1915, some six ships were sunk in the Dardanelles Straits. And then instead of calling the whole thing off, he insisted that six weeks later, a 
disastrously long gap that allowed the Turks to um, to get ready. Um, although that gap can't be blamed on him either. Um, the troops stormed ashore um, in the Gallipoli Peninsula on the European side of the of the Dardanelles Narrows, and um, and there they were held up in conditions just as bad as anything on the Western Front that they were obviously intended to try to obviate. So you have um, by the uh, time that they're all um, evacuated in January 1916, a um, toll of some 160,000 Allied troops killed and wounded. So, of course, this is a, a devastating blow to Churchill. He's forced to resign as First Lord of the Admiralty. Then a few months later, uh, when he of all the war uh, decisions of the cabinet, he resigned altogether and went into the trenches to fight in the First World War. But people still shouted, what about the Dardanelles, at him, at his public speeches, all the way through up until the 19, late 1920s. Uh, so it was, a, um, it was a devastating moment for him, and uh, in fact, he on one occasion even considered suicide. Wow. So the things that saved him. Sorry, can I just yeah, um, yeah, please, please <laughs> the two two things that saved him from um, from uh, utter despair were first of all his wife Clementine, who was tremendously supportive and uh, and uh, a uh, and a wonderful woman, um, and also of course he he didn't need to go and fight in the First World War himself, but he uh, became a lieutenant colonel and um, and fought in the front line of the trenches in the. Um, uh, in the in command of the sixth battalion of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, in which time he went into no man's land no fewer than thirty times, um, and extremely brave. He showed the same kind of bravery, physical bravery, as he'd shown many times before in five um, c- campaigns on four continents. So um, you have therefore somebody who um, who gets through this uh, terrible black period in his life by fighting, uh, by the support of his wife, and also by painting. He takes up painting at that time, and he says that it's the only thing that is able to take his mind off the pressures of of politics and the war. He does, of course, return to politics, and yet I was going back to something you were talking about uh, a little while ago. There's that sense of... uh, Resentment, if you will, that that some con- that some conservatives hold toward him, and I, I find that's very uh, interesting, considering that given what happens with the Liberal Party in the aftermath of the war, he eventually returns back to that party, that that second time crossing the aisle, so to speak. Uh, what is it that 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 leads him to uh, do that 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 course of events, and and how does that does he ultimately get embraced back into the Tory fold and resume his career as a conservative? Well, um, he was called back in um, July 1917 to uh, become Minister of Munitions, which is a tremendously important job in the um, in the First World War for obvious reasons. And he actually employs some two and a half million people in the uh, munitions productions factories, and um, and does very well there. He then became Minister of War, and he was in charge of demobilising the army, which he did very efficiently. And um, so. By 1921, when he is uh, Minister of the Colonies, um, he uh, is, is back in the, in the saddle in the Liberal government um, there of David Lloyd George. But the trouble is, Liberal coalition government. 
But then the uh, coalition collapses in October 1922, and he's without a seat. He lost his seat. uh, He lost his office. Um, He was outside the cabinet. And as he also points out, um, he was without an appendix as well, because he had appendicitis at the time that all this uh, was going on. And so um, he was actually in hospital on the day that the government fell. So, um, So from that moment on, in October 1922, he was able to um, be out of Parliament and able to uh, look again at, uh, at politics without being um, uh, subject to the Liberal Party whip. And although he tried on two occasions to get back into um, into Parliament and failed on both occasions, um, when he finally did get back in, he by that stage the Conservatives had come back to the policy of, um, of free trade that he'd always been in favour of. So he then crossed the floor of the House again and was made um, Chancellor of the Exchequer in the Conservative government led by Stanley Baldwin that came into uh, power in 1924. So he's Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1924. He is a leading member of the government and also of the Conservative Party. And yet, as you described, by the early 1930s, he is in the wilderness. He's, he's, he's in, for many con, uh, conservatives, a pariah. What happened to bring that about? And why was he, in effect, in the wilderness for as long as he was in the 1930s? Well, he was, um, when he became Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1924, he um, stayed as uh, Chancellor throughout that government, the the Baldwin government, which took uh, you up to uh, the summer of 1929 when they lost the election. Uh, He presented five uh, five budgets, um, uh, which was was a lot in those days. He, um, of course, presided over the very tough government response to the general strike of 1926, which also earned him even more unpopularity with the trade unions, um, which lasted in in many um, respects uh, for a very long time. And um, in 1929, he when, when he lost the uh, uh, the Tories lost the election, he nonetheless had um, had uh, won his seat this time, and he was able to look at uh, Tory policy in the round again in the, from a sort of um, objective point of view, and he decided that he. Uh, could not support the Tories in their support of the Labour Party's proposals to give India um, what was called dominion status, which meant self-governing status in the same way that Australia, by that stage, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand and uh, and Canada were. Uh, he didn't believe that that would be possible. He thought that there would be disasters, especially up in the Punjab. He thought that the um, Hindu majority would uh, dominate the Muslim minority. He didn't think that they would be fair to the untouchables or to the Indian princes. And so he opposed it. And um, this forced him to resign from the shadow cabinet in January 1931. And um, and oppose from the back benches uh, with a small group of about 60 die-hard right-wing Tories, um, the policy that was uh, supported by both front benches. So he was onto a losing wicket there, and um, and did indeed lose all of the votes for the next four years, as he was uh, 
he didn't he wasn't forced into the wilderness he basically forced himself into the wilderness and it wasn't over appeasement either it was over um uh indian self-government you describe this period as one of considerable frustration and yet he is at the same time trying to rally the country and have them pay attention to what's happening in Germany. How does he do that? And how does that ultimately lead him to return to office at the start of the war? Well, it's, um, it was a lonely furrow that he plowed. Virtually nobody else, um, no other senior figure in uh, British politics, um, spotted that uh, the dangers posed by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, which he did very early on. And he made um, great use of um, information that was leaked to him by uh, very brave whistleblowers um, in the civil service, in the intelligence service, and in the foreign office, uh, three or four individuals who uh, risked their careers by um, leaking him information, that uh, secret information, that um, allowed him to piece together what was happening in Germany, i.e. once Adolf Hitler came to power in January 1933, an enormous amount of... Um, of uh, um, spending on offensive weapons. Um, this was not just defensive, it was clearly offensive. And um, Churchill warned the, the nation. He traipsed up and down the country. He made uh, very impressive speeches in the House of Commons. He accused the governments, uh, three sets of governments, Ramsay MacDonald's, uh, Stanley Baldwin's and uh, Neville Chamberlain's of um, underplaying or even ignoring this um, clear and present danger to uh, democracy in the West. And uh, unfortunately, because the Second, well, the First World War had um, been uh, only you know 20 years earlier, uh, people just simply did not want to listen. They couldn't believe that Hitler and the Nazis would uh, ever start another war after the devastation of the uh, last one. And they thought that uh, Churchill was a warmonger, was uh, exaggerating. Um, he was uh, criticized for using secret information, of course. And, um, and people just uh, ridiculed him. They uh, attacked him uh, in the newspapers, of, of course. But also they um, tried to deselect him. The Conservative Party tried to deselect him from his seat uh, in order to silence him. And uh, one of the things that um, makes Churchill an admirable figure, I fear, I feel, is um, the way in which he didn't moderate his um, his message in the way that an awful lot of other politicians might have. Or they might just have shut up altogether. But Churchill didn't. He didn't care about any of that. Um, he uh, had the great moral courage, uh, allied to his physical courage, to continue to uh, make the warnings that he did about the true nature of Nazi Germany. At the same time, though, he also continues, uh, you know, opposing dominion status for India. He also champions the cause of Edward VIII. And it's interesting how it, he does. He always sticks by his guns, he, he, even in ways that might be counterproductive to his other goals. Whereas had he, you mentioned at, at various points, he has the opportunity uh, of, to return to office dangled in front of him. And yet he refuses to compromise his views or his principles in order to achieve that goal. 
well, isn't that the kind of leadership that we're all crying out for? Isn't that something <laughs> that uh, we uh, that we um, isn't that the reason that I'm hoping people will buy this book and that people are buying this book? <laughs> I don't think it would be in the bestseller list at the moment if it wasn't um, a an example to um, to everyone uh, that you you. Um, uh, believe what you say, and you keep saying it. Um, however unpopular it makes you, there he never had any, never took any notice of opinion polls. He didn't have a uh, spin doctor. He always wrote all his own speeches. He was um, a proper leader. You describe, and you, in your book, you really don't slight any part of Churchill's life. Yet you make the focus of your examination the war in his, in his wartime premiership. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about that. And in particular, given the uh, sources that you were able to draw upon, what new uh, you know, insights uh, you're able to bring into understanding Churchill's role as uh, prime minister, his role as uh, Britain's wartime leader and as leader of the alliance that ultimately triumphs in the war. Well, yes, you're right. I mean, at least half of the book is about the Second World War. It seems to me that that is the primary uh, importance of Winston Churchill in history, uh, his wartime leadership of Britain in the Second World War. So I think it does justify that amount of uh, of space that um, that I um, I give it. He was a an inspirational leader. Clearly, he was somebody who was able to um, to fight against the demoralisation that naturally would have. Um, hit Britain in the opening stages of the war when we were flung off the continent at Dunkirk. Um, although it was a miracle we got the army back, nonetheless, the whole of its, um, of its heavy weaponry was, uh, was left, um, destroyed on the, uh, on the beaches of Dunkirk. The men just came back with their rifles and that was it. Um, and so, um, we then had to face the prospect of, uh, possible immediate invasion by the Germans, um, maybe a parachute invasion in the same way that they'd used parachutists very successfully before. Um, the, uh, there was a, a strong pacifist element in, in Britain that we sometimes forget in those days. Uh, there was a, a fascist, um, the British Union of Fascists had uh, tens of thousands of members. There were communists who were also opposed to the war. It was a very um, difficult time, desperately needing, uh, especially during the time that um, the Germans bombed London, known as the Blitz, and the uh, and the time when the RAF were fighting the Luftwaffe in the fields, uh, sorry, above the fields of um, of southern England, uh, the Battle of Britain. It uh, required tremendous leadership. It required um, quick decision-making, um, decisive decision-making, uh, speeches that um, bolstered the nation, especially at the time of the fall of France, and, um, a, uh, and a clear message that um, we were going to fight on and not surrender. Even though there were elements in the Foreign Office and uh, elsewhere, especially in the Conservative Party, that wanted to make um, some kind of peace overtures to Adolf Hitler via Mussolini. And, um, and Churchill blocked all of that and uh, made it clear that we were going to fight on in words that really, I think, will resonate in as long as the English tongue is spoken. We have this you know, image of him today as being, you know, the, this great wartime leader. He's very successful. And yet you point out that when you look at his 
uh, career over the course of the war that he faced all of these uh, tribulations and difficulties that we glossed over. One example being, uh, I, I was particularly struck by how he captured that that particularly dark moment in the war in, in, in early 1942, even though the United States is involved, where uh, the you know basically the, the there is no effective. Uh, naval uh, force uh, in, in the Far East uh, or there, there were capital ships in the Mediterranean anymore and how, you know, this is during a time when it, he faces often, you know, challenges to his leadership, not just from people like Stafford Cripps on the left, but even from uh, people, uh, associates of his like Lord Beaverbrook. Yes, that's right. However bad the war got, uh, there were always people who would like to have taken his place and who, um, frankly, plotted against him. And of course, uh, the more um, terrible uh, the things that happened, you mentioned early 1942, well, that in February saw the fall of um, Singapore and then in June, the fall of Tobruk. Um, and defeats in the North African littoral. Um, so opposition people in Britain, of, as, as you say, of all parties, were quite able to point to disasters that had happened. Um, the uh, collapse of, of uh, Greece uh, in uh, May 1941 was another example. And to say that um, what was needed was to get rid of Winston Churchill. However, um, his personal popularity was actually extraordinarily high, not least because because the British people remembered that uh, they understood that one of the reasons for these disasters was that we hadn't been ready for war in 1939, and also that um, there had been only one person warning that we needed to spend more money on uh, on defence in the 1930s, and that had been Winston Churchill. So ordinary people in the street gave him an 88, 89, 90, sometimes early 90% um, opinion poll um uh, ratings. They they were they were um, truly extraordinary numbers that have never been seen before or since in British history and in, in the history of opinion polling. Um, but in the House of Commons, there were always people um, who were criticising him. They criticised him. Even the "We shall fight on the beaches" speech was criticised in the um, in the smoking rooms and the tea rooms of the House of Commons by Chamberlain Chamberlainite MPs. Um, it, um, as my book demonstrates, uh, he was always had to be on the lookout for people who uh, were attempting to um, to displace him, however much um, he uh, leadership he showed. And the darker the hour it got, the more noisy these people became. And that was just one political challenge they faced. Another one that you describe is the uh, one in terms of Britain's status in the alliance with the Soviet Union and the United States. I was thinking in particular about your section on Tehran, where he, when he has to worry about whether or not Britain is going to be in effect, shuffled out might be too uh, dramatic way of putting it, but in, in effect that he, that the British might be sidelined as the uh, Soviets and Americans might very well come together and treat the British as, as, as sort of the junior partner, even though they've been fighting the war longer than either one of them. Well, that's right. And in fact, of course, it was partly because we had fought the war, um, Britain had fought the war um, longer than either one of them, that um, they were in a weaker position by the time 1943, the Tehran conference that you mentioned, 
comes about in the November of that year, by which time, yes, um, Churchill had sort of spotted that in the post-war world, there was only going to be space for two superpowers, and it looked very much like Britain wasn't going to be one of them. And, um, and he uh, felt uh, some resentment at this, um, but nonetheless, there was very little he could have uh, done about it. Um, by the calendar year 1944, when uh, Britain produced 28,000 warplanes and the Russians and Germans both produced 40,000, the United States produced 94,000 warplanes. So it was quite clear that the US was going to be one of the um, of the two superpowers, and um, there was very little really that Churchill could do at a time of a of a shrinking empire and a uh, and uh, having far fewer men. Uh, vis-a-vis the Americans when it came to things like um, uh, Operation Overlord, the D-Day attacks. Um, But he did resent this, you know, uh, he could never say so publicly, but uh, it's clear from what he said to the king in their meetings and also to his private secretary, Jock Colville, that that Churchill did resent the um, inevitable fact that after the war, um, British power was going to be eclipsed. You quote uh, this... uh you quote Churchill in this conversation that he has with Anthony Eden, where he talks about how he's uninterested in a lot of the issues that Britain is going to be facing in peacetime. And yet after the war, he stays on as conservative party leader for a, another decade. And he also returns as prime minister in 1951 and serves another four years of that position. Why did he decide to hold on? And what were some of the challenges that he faced during this period, both as opposition leader and then later on as prime minister? Um, well, the key factor was, I suppose, A, that he's a fighter and uh, and Churchill uh, was not going to um, uh, give up. The second thing, of course, was that he hadn't won a general election as prime minister. He had become prime minister as a result of the fall of Neville Chamberlain, but he hadn't ever actually won an election. He'd only fought one election, and that was in July 1945, and he'd lost it. So uh, he wanted to carry on and uh, and to be returned by the will of the people, um, which, of course, did happen in April 1951, um, by which time he was in his late 70s, and um, and 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 probably, um, although he was not a bad peacetime premier, uh, he wasn't a very good one either, and um, he missed any opportunities, series of opportunities to resign. He could have resigned on his 80th birthday. He could have resigned at the time of the Queen's coronation. Um, he could have resigned when he had a stroke, a debilitating stroke in 1953. But uh, on each occasion, he passed up these um, these perfect opportunities. And um, poor Anthony Eden had to uh, wait, as you say, for an entire 10 years after the Second World War before he himself became prime minister. I, I, was, I had to think about it when you described how, you know, in, in some ways it didn't matter in the end because, you know, Eden would not necessarily respond any differently to a lot of the issues that Churchill faced uh, during his, uh, his uh, second premiership. Uh, and yet, you know, when when Eden does get the reins, he doesn't survive more than two years before he has to leave office himself. That's right. Well, the Suez Crisis wasn't um, anything that people could really have predicted in 1940, uh, 1954, 1955 even. It was a sudden um, nationalization of the Suez Canal by, by uh, President Nasser of Egypt that, um, that suddenly threw... Um, 
Eden into a situation that I think even Churchill would have found tremendously difficult to have uh, have dealt with successfully, not least because the Americans um, were um, no longer on the side of the colonial, the old colonial powers. Um, they wanted to forge ahead with uh, their own relations with the young uh, Arab national uh, nationalist powers. So, um, in a way, Churchill was quite lucky, really, that he uh, that he did resign in time. Um, it's difficult to know how he could have uh, dealt with that situation any differently from Eden. You have now written this massive uh, work on Churchill that is, you know, goes into his life in great detail, reflecting the years that you've spent going through his papers, uh, you, you know, assessing various aspects of his life. At this point, what is it that you've taken away uh, from it about Winston Churchill? And what is it also you're hoping that readers take away from it about Winston Churchill? I think I'd like, um, I'd like readers to take away the, um, a, a series of ideas, really. One of them is the concept of this man's extraordinary physical and, um, and moral courage. Also, his ability to, um, to, work out sentences and phrases and paragraphs that, that are clear and beautifully written and able to go straight to the heart of an issue. And on top of that, his ability as a politician to learn from his mistakes. And um, on top of all of those things, uh, his foresight, not just before the Second World War, as we've spoken about, but also before the, uh, after the Second World War, at the time of the um, Iron Curtain speech in March 1946 in Fulton, Missouri, where he uh, warned the world about Stalin and Soviet communism and was attacked for that as well. So you have all of these things coming together in a politician who was a flawed genius who made lots of mistakes but learned from them. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm thinking, uh, I've got a couple of ideas about what to write next. Usually I've already started writing the next book by the time I'm still publicizing the last one. This time it's very difficult because following Napoleon, which was my book before Churchill, and now Churchill, it's terribly difficult to think of a person who's uh, a subject who's going to um, engage me to anything like the degree that those two great behemoths uh, did. Um, but if any of your listeners have any ideas for what I uh, what I should write about next. I'd be very interested in entertaining them. Well, I'm sure whatever it is you choose, it ultimately will be a, a, a book just as interesting as your Churchill biography, which I hope, given, as, as you were alluding to at the very end, uh, what we've talked about uh, over the over the past uh, several minutes has only just scratched the surface of this, uh, of this book that really examines so many different aspects of his life. Thank you very much indeed for giving me such a long time to uh, to talk about a subject I love. It's really, I really appreciate it, Mark. Well, you're very welcome, and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> Thank you.